0: The arrogance of Israel testifies against her. Israel and Ephraim will stumble under their load of guilt. Judah will, too, fall with them. When they come with their flocks and herds to offer sacrifices to the Lord, they will not find him, because he has withdrawn from them. They have betrayed the honor of the Lord, bearing children that are not his. Now their false religion will devour them along with their wealth. Sound the alarm in Gibeah, blow the trumpet in Ramah, raise the battle cry in beth Aven. Lead on into battle, O warriors of Benjamin. One thing is certain, Israel. On your day of punishment, you will become a heap of rubble. The leaders of Judah have become like thieves, so I will pour my anger on them like a waterfall. The people of Israel will be crushed and broken by my judgment, because they are determined to worship idols. I will destroy Israel as a moth consumes wool. I will make Judah as weak as rotten wood. When Israel and Judah saw how sick they were, Israel turned to Assyria, to the great king there, but he could neither help nor cure them. I will be like a lion to Israel. I will tear them to pieces. I will carry them off, and no one will be left to rescue them. Then I will return to my place until they admit their guilt and turn to me. For as soon as trouble comes they will earnestly
1: search for me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, um, we take these verses serious. Uh, it's really scary. It's scary to think that God um, sometimes... Uh, we get our just desserts, and that's terrifying. And so, Father, help me to teach well today. Please fill me, fill the listeners. I pray, God, that they would hear you and not just me. I pray that, Father, you would open up our hearts, convict us where we need to be convicted but I also know, God, there's a lot of weary people that you would comfort those who are trusting you and trying to, trying to follow hard after you. And sometimes we fall and stumble and are loaded down with guilt. But I pray that, God, we would see that your love never stops. It never stops. We thank you, God, and we love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you are listening closely, you'll see this is going to be a very difficult passage. To be honest with you, it's been hard to work through this, meditate through this all week long because sometimes when you preach exegetically, that means let the scriptures tell you what God wants you to hear. Some of it's pretty scary. And today's is tough. I'll be honest with you. But to begin, um, I want to begin with really answering a question, because I think this is going to answer a question that's on all of our hearts. When you're a pastor, I would say people come up and have questions. They've got all kinds of questions. Some are theological, you know, dealing with high theology. Are you a Calvinist, Arminian? Do you believe in God's sovereignty or free will? And those are normal questions you should be ready for as a pastor. Some are what I would call process questions. What do you believe about baptism? Do you believe in infant baptism or do you believe in believer's baptism? How about communion? So those are process questions and some are speculative. People love speculative questions. When's Jesus going to return? Is the rapture going to happen because the coronavirus is here? Pastor, I'm scared. Is he coming back? Yes, he's coming back. I don't know when though. But then there is the question. And I think the, the question is a question you'll hear it in ordination councils. You'll get this phone call at 11 o'clock at night where a parent's asking you a deep question. But each of you have this question deep in your heart. And a pastor better know how to answer it. And here is the question. It's termed. I'm going to term, term it in one way, but it's termed in many ways. And the question is this. Is the person who once accepted Jesus and continues to sin, by continues to sin, rebels, runs, turns, are they still saved? And I know you've asked this question. If you're a parent, you have a child that has run from what they've been taught, you ask this question. If you have a brother or sister who wants nothing to do with church anymore, you ask this question. And if you yourself are caught up into some sin? Some of you wake up at night wondering, am I still His? That's what we're going to deal with today. It's a tough question. I believe personally there's two kinds of faiths that can be exercised. I'm going to call one vain faith and then the other vital faith. Vain faith, according to 1 Corinthians 15.2, is that faith, that is believed for empty reasons. Reasons like, let's say, your grandma wants you to believe. Okay, grandma, just get off my back. I'll believe. Or you come to church because you're supposed to come to church. I grew up in a home that my whole family was a certain denomination, so I guess I have to be a certain denomination. But it's not necessarily believing for the right reason. It's for vain or empty reasons. And I believe if something's vain or empty, it's not genuine. It's called vain exercise of faith. Then you have vital exercise of faith. Let me show you what I mean by this. Go to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. This is the clearest explanation of what vital faith is. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. So that we who are the uh, In him, in him, it's a prepositional phrase, means I'm hidden in Christ. So in Christ, when you heard the word of truth, when you heard, it means not just went through your ears, but it was comprehended. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, so the gospel is very clear, Jesus came to earth as a man, died on the cross for your sins rose again on the third day for your salvation in your place. So when you heard that message, and then it says, and believed in Him, that I really believe that Jesus did do this for me, I accepted it. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. That means if you have accepted this, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. That means God Himself lives in you. It's a vital connection with the living God. This is what I'm talking about. Is the person who once has this connection with Jesus and continues to sin still saved? Yes. Because he who begins a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Can a person who has vital faith still continuously sin and rebel? Yes. Because we still have this old nature in us. So then the question is, How does God respond? And that's what we're going to talk about. So the title of today in Hosea chapter 5 is there is a love, love has a hard edge. That means when God promises to love us, love doesn't always come in sweet packages. It does have a hard edge. So if you turn to Hosea chapter 5, we'll be looking through the ESV. If I use the NLT, which was read, I'll let you know because there will be portions when I read it. But I want you to go to Hosea chapter 5 in the ESV. Just to give you a background, this is our fifth week on Hosea. The story's simple and hopefully you get it by now. I want to drum it into your head. Hosea is a prophet. God asked him to marry Gomer. Knowing Gomer would cheat on him, have two children born out of wedlock on him, And eventually become a prostitute. Where Hosea, after many years, finally brings her back home. It's a metaphor. It's a real life metaphor of how God and Israel relate. God loves Israel, but Israel runs after foreign gods. So God lets them go. Eventually, God's going to let them be taken captive by Assyria and Babylon and they come back. We've talked about this. It's also a metaphor of our flesh. You and I, in the flesh, are prone to wander. We're prone to run. We like sin. And what happens if a person who's Christ wanders too far and rebels? What happens to him? And so I want to begin with this premise, and this premise we find in chapter 3, verse 1, and the premise basically says this, you need to understand the love of God. In the middle of verse 1, it says, even as the Lord loves the church of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cake, so I bought her for 15 shekels, and I brought her back. So in a sense, the Lord loves the children, even though they turn, His love does not stop doesn't end it's amazing i think in our minds because we're used to human love if i love somebody and i cheat on them it's over it's done happens all the time divorce is as common out today as ever we're quick to give up but god's not he does not stop his love we use is unconditional that means he chooses to love based on nothing we do. He loves us. So his love doesn't stop. That's the opening premise. That's where we begin. Because sometimes his love doesn't look like love. And you'll understand what I mean in a minute. So we're going to come to our story in Hosea. We have just finished chapter 4. And if you go to chapter 4 in verse 16... Israel has reached a stage of existence which is terrifying. And some of you may be close to this stage. Some of you know people in your family that have reached this stage. And I'm going to call it the stubborn heifer syndrome. Look at verse 16. Actually, you can begin in verse 15 of chapter 4. Though you play the whore, O Israel, let not Judah become guilty. Enter not into Gilgal, nor go up to Beth-Avon, and swear not as the Lord lives. Verse 16, like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. So a stubborn heifer is a young female cow. And imagine you take this female cow and you want to lead her into the pen or maybe up a ramp into a truck. And you have her by the rope and you're pulling her, you're pulling her. You pull her, but she doesn't want to go. So what she does, she stiffens her front legs, pushes back with her hooves, and she is resisting. This is where Israel is. Actually, you know, it's very interesting. What happens if the farmer lets go of the rope? The the cow will slide on its backside. That's why it's called backsliding. Resistance, resistance, all right, go where you want, and you slide backwards. That's where the term backsliding comes from. That's where Israel's at. In a way that, what's very interesting about this condition is there is um, what I would say two character qualities to know if you are have the stubborn heifer syndrome. The first one's in the second part of verse 16. It says this, it says, Can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in broad pasture? The NLT writes it like this. So, should the Lord feed her like a lamb in lush fat pasture? And Isaiah chapter 26 verse 10 puts it like this. Though grace is shown to the wicked, they go on doing evil. In other words, to tell that you're stubborn is God can give you grace upon grace upon grace and you don't want it. You're kind of, ah, oh, big deal. I, I've told this story before, but it's still shocking to me and it's an illustration of what I'm trying to explain. I, uh, my wife and I were in Chicago going to school at Moody. We went to a great pizza restaurant there called Giordano's. How many of you have ever heard of Giordano's? Raise your hand. How many of you had Giordano's? Raise your hand. Ken, it's good, is it not? It's good. Mouth-watering, thick cheese, juicy pepperonis, butter, butter-baked, crispy crust. You order a medium pizza takes a long time 45 minutes but it's worth the wait out comes the pizza and you just get a medium but you can't eat you can't even eat half of it so my wife and I are full we put it in a box we bring it back to the dorms as we're walking back to our dorms it was late at night it was dark outside and a guy comes out of the alleyway like this hey you got a few bucks I'm really hungry I'm really hungry. You got a few bucks? And I said, I got something better than that. It's still hot. Giordano's pizza. How about that? And the guy goes, Well, what's on it? Wait a minute. I'm giving you half of my pizza. Pretty expensive pizza. It's really good pizza. And you are you're picky? Aren't you the one starving? I was talking to somebody just this week and they said, "Yeah, I know people that just don't like to go to church because they said it's just not fun. It's boring." Oh, so uh let me get this straight. Jesus who died on a cross for your sins. You don't want to hear that message? You who deserve to go to hell, you don't want to hear that message? Oh, it's boring. Give me something fun. What we've done in America is we've turned, man, we've turned it up on side to side. I remember when I was a kid, I would go because God existed, and I really should serve God. Now we go if God serves me well. God needs to serve me well. Okay, great. Thanks, God, for dying for me, but can you make it a little bit better? Stubborn heifer. Everything's about them. Better meet what I want or I'm not going. Though grace is shown to the wicked, they go and do an evil. And then verse 5 of Hosea chapter 5. We read Hosea 1 through 5. Hear this, O priests. Pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king. For the judgment's for you. You've been a snare at Mizpah and a net. Spread upon Tabor, and the revolters have gone deep into the slaughter, into slaughter. So basically, the cows are getting ready to be destroyed by God. That's kind of a scary verse, verse 2. I'm going to discipline all of them. I know, Ephraim, and Israel's not hidden from me. For now, o Ephraim, you played the whore, Israel's defiled. Their deeds do not permit them to the return to their God, for the spirit of whoredom's within them, and they know not the Lord. And here's the final stage of the heifer, the pride of Israel, testifies to his face. The NLT says he's arrogant in his sin. Pride, as it says in Philippians, becomes their shame. They glory, in their, they glory in their shame. They're proud of their sinning. They get proud of their sinning. Did you know demons are out there? They're real, and they want us to think that sinning badly is is a badge of honor. You're cool if you can sin badly. I, I think that's somewhat why women are allured to wild, tough guys. You know, the guys with the tattoos. and They're tough, man. There's this shame, honor and shame. That's why men like to listen to the seductress. Because I believe the goal, the goal of the enemy of God is to get his children to verse 4 where they get them to do deeds, where they realize, you know what, God won't take me back because I've gone so far. I've heard people, I can't, I can't go into church anymore because you, you know what I've done. God can't forgive me. The goal is to to get somebody to sin to the point where they're loaded down with guilt. That's what the end of verse... It's the middle of verse 5 says, Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Guilt convicts your heart before God that I've sinned and I'm ashamed, so I run from Him. That's the end game of stubborn heifer syndrome. The person is still loved. God still loves them. It's unconditional. But overwhelming guilt makes people not believe their love anymore. That's when, it does its, when, when your overwhelming guilt doesn't accept God's love anymore. It's a terrible place to be in. I, um, many of you know that when I, before I became a pastor, I wanted to go into advertising. I wanted to go into marketing. And I use this marketing phrase a lot, but it's so... Catchy. I've done some reading on it. It Says one of the top. It's one of the top advertising slogans in the last twenty years, and it goes like this. Let me see if you know the end of it. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. And people say it kind of cool. It's really what it is. It's the heart of the stubborn heifer. It, It. It identifies it perfectly, but they say it kind of like this. What happens in Vegas, man? It stays in Vegas. There's a little bit of arrogance in there, a little bit of pride in your evil. But I was reading about why the advertisers came up with a slogan, and listen to it. It's really interesting. Because it's the heart of a lot of people in our church and in America, and it's sick. It goes like this. You can do anything and be anything you want to be. You can talk to the attractive stranger at the bar and dance on top of the bar. Because no matter the end result, no one at home has to know. huh? No matter what happens, your secrets will be safe. You're a little bit, you know, you got this hidden knowledge nobody else has because you're a little bit more on the edge. It's the pride, I call it, of secretive freedom. It's arrogance in your evil. It's funny in Genesis 3 5, Adam and Eve were lied to by this serpent with this lie. God knows if you eat the fruit, your eyes will be open and you will know both good and evil. You'll know it. Well, you know what he's promising? Is is very interesting. I was reading just a commentary on that verse. It said he wasn't necessarily promising intellectual knowledge of evil. He was promising experiential knowledge of evil where after I eat the apple, I, I for the first time will know guilt and shame. It's terrible to be loaded down with guilt and shame. And then Psalm 10, 11, talks about the stubborn man's heart. And the stubborn heifer's heart will sin, and then he'll say, Ah, God won't see what I do. He, he can't see. That's chapter 10, verse 11. As if God's this old man who's blind, and I'd just get away with it. It's weird. It's really odd. So what does this lead to? This leads to... This leads to verse six. With their flocks. So meaning they're going with their flocks, they're going with their sacrifices. They're going taking their lambs or their bulls or they're taking some of their doves to the temple to seek the Lord. So it's like they're going to church. They've dressed up, they got their best suit and tie on. They got on their religious face. You've seen a religious face. My grandfather had a great religious face. Walk into church. Head bowed. But then when he get home, he'd be screaming at you. Like, what kind of face is that? So in the beginning of verse 6, they're walking in at the religious face to the temple. But God says, you know what? They're not going to find me. He's withdrawn from them. So the, so. Stubborn heifer, heifer syndrome leads to divine withdrawal. He leaves. Why? Because here's the, here's the reasoning. If you don't want God's care, if you don't want God's advice, if you don't want God's help, you don't want His assistance, you don't want His honest love, He then no longer is obligated to care. That's overwhelming to me. You could ask it like this. Must God always care? Well, of course, He's God. Must He? This is telling me no. Nope. Do you know why? Because relationship is reciprocal. It's reciprocal. If God keeps offering and offering and offering and I keep rejecting, 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 why is He going to listen anymore? Well, when I pray, He better hear me. Why? You don't listen to him? There's a new, it's really, this is fascinating. Um, There's a new, what I would call a new psychological ailment when it comes to marriage. I I do marriage counseling and in the old days one of the biggest problems with when you'd have a couple come in to get married is men would be workaholics and a lot of times they would abandon their wives, you know, to, to the job or So they would work all day, so you'd have lonely wives at home. That used to be a big deal in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. But a lot of psychologists are saying there's a new trend that kind of started in the mid-90s. And this new trend, believe it or not, is called the princess sickness. What is the princess sickness? Let me read it to you. One psychologist said, princess sickness starts with your typical cute little toddler girl whom you repeatedly tell you're amazing, you're beautiful, and you can't do anything wrong. And they say, stop this, because the rest of the earth may not care nearly as much as you do about her. She'll still have to work as hard as everyone else. She'll still have to treat people with respect and kindness, and she'll have to learn to adjust to adult life someday. And if they get married, woe to her husband. Why? Because the princess sickness says a lot of women get married not realizing marriage is hard. It takes two. Especially when kids come into the picture. While the guy's at work, there's a lot of long, lonely days with children at home. But if you're a princess, it's not fair. So you're kind of, they say the husband will come home and the wife's mad at the husband for being gone all day at work. So the husband will always feel guilty goes on, here's another quote, there will be complete and utter disappointment for the princess when people are not living up to her expectations. And when she has to do certain things or carry out certain instructions that regular people have to do every day. Well, mom and dad let me watch 17, Frozen 17 times in a row. Why doesn't my husband? It's not normal life. Why do I bring this up? Because what happens in our culture about God is we have sort of this princess syndrome when it comes to God. God needs to serve me, but I don't have to listen to him. So what we've done to God now is we, in a way, we've picked and choose the God we want to serve. We we love the good things about God, that he's kind, merciful, caring, name it and claim it, but we don't like the hard edge of God where he disciplines those he loves. And so, what we need to realize from verse 6 is that God won't be fooled by your religion. With their flocks and their herds, they're going being very pious to go offer their sacrifices, but God's not listening. Why? Verse 7, because they've dealt faithlessly with the Lord. That means they're not reciprocal in their relationship, for they've born alien children, meaning they're raising their children up, not in the fear of the Lord, but in the fear of their idols. Do we raise our kids in the fear of the Lord or the fear of consumption and profit and pleasure? I don't know. I have to. This is why it's been hard for me. I don't know. I don't know if I pray at the dinner table like I should. Thanks, God, for this food. I'm reading a I'm reading a book on Wilbur, Wil, William Wilberforce. And it's overwhelmed me, what that guy did, but he would make all of his kids before meal kneel on their before their chairs and honor God. It's pretty heavy, like I'm. It was convicting to me. Um, and it says, "Now the new moon shall devour them with their fields," meaning that the, the religion's not doing a good, any good for them. You can put ashes on your forehead on Wednesday. But if you don't live like it Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, what does it do? I used to do that. So then this leads to a final stage. And this is where it gets difficult. Well, here's my question, actually. This is, um, before I go any further, as talking this over with Jared, we go through our sermons. And I was just... I've been reading through the Bible and I got to this section. I want you to listen to this. I'm going to read it in the NLT. It's in Deuteronomy 31, 12-21. God is, you know, like before Hosea, it's not like God didn't tell him. Verse 12 says, Call all Israel together, men, women, children. So Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law. Moses is about to die. He gathers all the people to give the law one more time. So he's going to die really soon. He goes, so I'm going to gather all the people. And who he gathers is he gathers men, women, children, and the foreigners living in Israel. So they may hear the book of instruction and learn to fear the Lord your God. Carefully obey all the terms of these instructions. Do this so that your children who have not known these instructions will hear them and also will learn to fear the Lord your God. Do this as long as you live in the land you're crossing the Jordan to occupy. And that's where Israel and Judah is. So the Lord, in verses 16 and 17, told Moses he's going to die. And then he says, Moses, after you're gone, these people will begin to worship foreign gods, the gods of the land where they're going. They will abandon me and break my command or covenant that I've made with them. Then my anger will blaze force against them, and I will abandon them hiding my face from them, and they will be devoured. I will abandon. So he told them pretty clearly what would happen, and it's as if they don't believe him. When God says something in his word, it, it, a lot of times it doesn't seem like people believe him anymore. Like he says some pretty direct things, and it's, it's almost like we don't believe him. Anyhow, the final stage. What is the final stage? So you have the heifer stage, the syndrome, leads you to the withdrawal of God, which leads to the final stage. And what is the final stage? It's called the chastisement of God. The chastisement of God. This is what was read really starting in verse 8. Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah, sound the alarm in Bethaven, we follow you, O Benjamin. Listen up. Nobody's listening, so blow the horn. Nobody cares. Um, So Ephraim shall become a desolation in the day of punishment among the tribes of Israel. I will make known what is sure. They become like a landmark upon whom I'll pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim's oppressed, crushed in judgment because he's determined to go after filth. Verse 12 is interesting, but I'm like a moth to Ephraim and like dry rot to the house of Judah. So what he's saying is what is chastisement? Chastisement is this. When God withdraws, so does his restraint. And when God's restraint is taken away, evil comes flooding back in. Judgment, like, if you think through it, judgment isn't God pounding on a person. Judgment is God stepping back and letting those who wanted to pound on you all the time do their work. So, for instance, you have here in verse. So you have in verse twelve. But I'm a moth to Ephraim and like dry rot to the house of Judah. So what he's saying is, what does a moth do? A moth comes flying in on, into the closet, and it hides in the darkness and starts nibbling on the fabric of your jacket, slowly. So you put the jacket on. There's a little hole, but if you don't do anything about the moth, get some mothballs. More moths are going to come in and tear it up. So in a way, you could say it like this. What is chastisement? Love will crush the heart of the stubborn to bring him back, but first it starts gently. He'll let you go. He'll let you make your decisions. You don't want him, so go ahead. And slowly, the absence of God allows the world's poison to poison you. It doesn't do it right away. says like dry rot what is dry rot where the inside of wood starts drying out and the integrity of the wood is no longer what it once was and if you let dry rot go for too long let's say a barn is has dry rot and then a strong wind comes all of a sudden it looks like damage happened in a day but it's taken time and that's what's happening here so verse 13 when ephraim saw his sickness and judah his wound then ephraim did he go to god no he went to syria oh (laughs) I'm going to go someplace else other than God. And that's when it got bad. That's when Assyria dragged them off and really uh, treated Israel like slaves. So sometimes the worst punishment from God is letting people have what they want. You know, you have a good father and a good mother. One of their objectives is to help stop their kids from making horrible, horrible decisions. But let's say the kids don't listen anymore and they want candy for dinner and dad says, all right, if you don't listen, just eat candy for the rest of your life. Go ahead. It's not good for your teeth, not good for your stomach, not good for your body. What if that same father goes ahead and, um, do you want to be a girl or a boy or a dog? You can be whatever you want to be. Go ahead. Even though I know you're raised, a, I know you're a boy, but, hey, you want your own choices, so you're nine years old. Make up your choice. You want to love whoever you want. Go ahead. Pete Judge will help you out with that. Go ahead. You can be whatever you want. I'm not your father anymore because you don't listen to me anymore, so who cares? Did you know, by the way, did you know there's a lot of exploitation going on with this whole homosexual stuff? People like it with young boys. I'm just telling you, it's not as clean as you think it is. It's a dark world out there. We (laughs) Politics just thinks everybody has a good heart out there. No, we're evil. All of us are. That's why we protect our kids. Not just say nice political slogans because it sounds so inclusive. That doesn't mean anything. What if you eat bats and skunks? Should a virus spread? Does God have an obligation to stop it? Some of you might be saying, so you mean to tell me? God allowed me to be hurt. He may allow me to get hurt in order to win me back. Yeah, God wouldn't do that. That's harsh. But I have to remind you of something before you think God is mean. And here's what I need to remind you of. Someone was already crushed for you. So you don't have to have the ravages of sin ruin you for the rest of eternity. Somebody already was handed over the sinful men. You know, it's really interesting. It's in Luke. It's in Luke chapter twenty-two, verse fifty-three. Before Jesus, uh, it's it's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and the the um, officers are going. Judas betrays Jesus. They're going to take him to the cross, and really, his disciples are upset that Jesus is being taken away. And Jesus says, "Hey." This is the night when darkness reigns. We're letting, God is going to let darkness take over tonight. And when darkness takes over, you know what they do? They destroy the Son of God. God allowed the Son of God, His Son, and Jesus voluntarily allowed Himself to be crushed for you so you don't have to be crushed for all eternity. God isn't mean. He loves you. But if you don't want to listen to them and you got your legs pushed out and you want to be a stubborn heifer, there's only one way to get you back and that's let you have what you want. And it's bad. But Jesus died. Jesus died so God's mercy might stop you and turn you around and say, oh my, God loves me. One of my favorite verses, Galatians 2.20, it goes like this. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, not I, but it's Christ who lives in me. In this life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith, vital faith, of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Why should I live by faith? Because sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it might seem boring. Sometimes I don't understand. Why should I live by faith? Because he loved me and he gave himself for me. He loved me to keep me away from what wants to kill me. He loved me because He promised He'll never leave me or forsake me. So the purpose of this passage isn't to beat you up. The purpose is for you to wake up and say, God's heart is to protect and rescue you. But if you don't want it, He'll let you go. It's very interesting. In the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 5, verse 5, there's a guy that was sinning wickedly and he wasn't repenting. And you know what Paul told the church to do? Paul said, hey, just hand the guy over Satan and let him buffet him. Hopefully he'll get saved on the last day. Oh, just give him over. Run to the cross. Because that's where you'll find protection. That's where you'll find safety, and that's where you'll experience real, honest to goodness love. We're going to sing and close on that. Jared, could you come on up and lead us? With that, I'm going to pray while the band gets ready, but I want you to really consider what's said because this isn't easy, but it's true. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that. um, This message, what is true of this message will land hard, but it will also cause us to run to you, not be ashamed of our actions to run away from you, not to turn away from you, but to say, wow, God is full of mercy and love, full of love and kindness and compassion. Thank you for this morning, God. We love you. In Christ's name, amen. Stand together, please.
0: To the cross I look And to the cross I cling Of its suffering I do dream Of its work I do see. Remember this
1: it, my Savior Both bruised and crushed Show that God is love and God is just. He calls us to look upon the cross again. At the cross you
0: beckon me. You draw me gently to my knees and I am lost for words so lost in love I Sweetly broken,
1: holy surrender.
0: What a priceless
1: gift! What a price.